Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. Now we're in part three today of a sermon series that we've been rolling through called Intentional Parenting. Uh, Intentional Parenting. And uh, the heart of the series is pretty simple. Um, It is never too early and it is never too late to be intensely intentional as a parent. It was awesome. I was uh, walking uh, out of Little League the other day and I ran into a grandmother taking her daughter from softball to the car. And she was like, Tyler, I so appreciate this sermon series. It's helping me out during round two. I love that mindset. I love that mindset because every single one of us got a kid in our lives, whether it's your kid in the home, whether it's your adult kid, whether it's your grandkid, your nephew, your niece, all right, you're the godparent, whatever it may be, we all have an opportunity to impress Jesus and the will of God on the next generation and raise them up. So look, you never graduate from parenting and I'm hoping that you're grabbing something from this series. Quick recap on it. Um, In week one, we focused on one word in particular, and that word was intentionality, intentionality. And that whole sermon was really just a visionary plea for parents to take responsibility and ownership over the leadership of their kids. Last week, we focused on the word vision, vision. We spent a pretty significant amount of time trying to help you catch a vision. In fact, you got to go back and watch last week. You got to, um, because I, I created four worksheets for you, if you will, and uh, the first two will help you catch a vision of what you want to see in your kids someday, and then the last two will help you operationalize that vision through the small uh, habits and through the big moments that life brings at you. Very, very important sermon. Now, today, the word we are focusing on, though, today, the word we're focusing on is, is, is this, initiation. Initiation, And I just want to admit to you ahead of time, this sermon, more than any of the sermons, will be bent towards parents with kids still in the home. Because I believe that that's basically what the first 20-ish or so years of a kid's life is for you parents. It's you initiating them into the realities of life and the realities of faith. We cannot expect our kids to catch a healthy vision of life on their own accidentally. It won't happen. And we cannot delegate this role of initiating them into life to anyone else. It's your role. God created the family system for a reason. So I want you to understand how to initiate them into life. Now, when you look at diverse cultures and global communities, they have a lot to teach us about this. And that's where I want to begin today. James Hollis is a psychologist. He's studied global communities and how they initiate people or initiate young people into adulthood. And he basically came up with a six steps, six steps that he sees across culture in really every culture but our own on initiating young people. Uh, Step number one is uh, the separation from childhood, he calls it. Separation from childhood. Basically, it's that moment where we tell our kids you're not a baby anymore. Second is the death of uh, naivety. Um, This is basically when we uh, tell our kids, here are the realities of life. The third is the impartation of the tribe's religion, story, and required roles. Like this is how uh, uh, you fit into our community and this is how you fit into our faith. Fourth is the big test. You'll often see some big tests in different societies, you know, it's basically, let's see if you're ready to be a man, if you're ready to be a woman, we're gonna test you. 
Fifth is a blessing ceremony where you basically uh, welcome your, uh, your, your son, now man, your daughter, now woman, into adulthood. And then the sixth uh, step is the reintegration into society to serve. Now it's time to play your part. Now, I have found some of the initiation examples around the world today absolutely stunning. Did a little research this week, and I want to spend the next few minutes actually just showing you some of the way global cultures initiate kids. Some of them will be familiar to you. Some of them won't. But I think it's valuable to see how intentional other, uh, other cultures are. Uh, so first, you'll probably recognize this one. This is uh, the Jewish coming-of-age tradition called the bar mitzvah or the bat mitzvah for, uh, for young ladies. Uh, at 13, Jewish boys basically celebrate their commitment to the faith and they recognize that they are responsible for following Jewish law. It's a religious ceremony primarily, not a party. It's a religious ceremony. The party comes after, usually to celebrate all the hard work the young man ha has put in to preparing for the day. I remember when I traveled to uh, the Holy Land, uh, we went to the Temple Mount where the temple was located. It's now a Muslim holy site. Uh, but outside the Western Wall, has anybody been there? There's this section sort of like cordoned off to the side where bar mitzvahs are happening just constantly. Just constantly because fathers want their sons to be close to the center point of the temple during this formative uh, point of their life. Here's the next one. You're probably familiar with bar mitzvahs, not so much with this one. Uh, this is the Vanuatu coming of age tradition called land diving, which is basically bungee jumping, just way less safe. <laughs> so in Vanuatu, which is a small island in the middle of the South Pacific, young boys come of age by jumping off a 98 foot tower with a bungee like vine tied to their ankles. Now, okay. <laughs> Boy, boys, are, boys do it when they're like seven years old. They start when they're seven. They start on lower towers, okay? And you work your way up. But here's the amazing thing. When they start doing their jumps at like seven or eight years old, uh, what their mother will do is she'll stand at the bottom with, uh, with an item from their childhood. And after the boy completes the, the jump, they'll throw it away. Your teddy bear, gone, right? Like that's, that's the mindset because it represents the slow transition from boyhood to manhood. Next picture is of the Katam Al-Karam coming of age tradition in Malaysia. Um, 11's a special birthday for Muslim girls as it marks the time when they celebrate this. Girls spend years preparing for this day, reviewing the Quran, memorizing the Quran so that they can uh, recite the final chapter before their friends and family at the ceremony. You can see the regalia there. I mean, it's, it's very, very important. Next picture here is of the Maasai warriors of Kenya and Tanzania, Maasai warriors. Now they have several coming of age rites for especially their young boys, but basically the boys come together around the age of 10. They have a sort of a initiation celebration where they drink all sorts of things like milk and blood and they eat copious amounts of meat. They're circumcised, okay, and they're not allowed to show any pain. And then after that, the boys move into a community for the next 10 years to be trained as warriors together. 
After 10 years of warrior training, they move from being a warrior to a senior warrior and they're then allowed to marry. The Messiah for you. You may be familiar with the Amish coming of age tradition called Rumspringa. Uh, you may be familiar with the Hispanic Quinceanera. There are so many more examples I could run you through, but um, I wanna show you all these to ask you this question. It's clear the world does stuff. It's clear the world takes this pretty seriously. What do we do? In the United States of America, who is creating an initiation pathway and liminal spaces and ritualized celebrations in order to lead their youth into adulthood? Who's making it that important? Who's forming their kids in Christ? Who's introducing them to the realities of life? Who's testing their strength and their will, then celebrating their maturity, then sending them out to serve the community in a memorable way? Like, what are we even doing in the United States of America? Oh, wait, I remember. Uh, (laughs) We do super sweet 16 parties. Anybody remember this MTV show? Come on, admit it. Who's seen this show before? Several of, shame on you. Okay, now uh, let me me summarize the plot for you more civilized people in the room. Uh, Here's the plot. Spoiled brat does what spoiled brats do, but this time with a half million dollar budget. Okay, so I remember watching uh, one of the episodes a long time ago. (laughs) Don't judge me, okay? And uh, I remember in this episode, this girl had like a $400,000 budget for her Sweet 16 party. And she was carried in, as you can see in the pictures, on on a throne by male models. And uh, then later when a belly dance routine went wrong that she had choreographed with some of her friends, she uh, looked over at her mom and cussed her mom out as if it was her mom's fault. And I'm sitting here thinking, I'm watching this. That lady has 400,000 reasons as to why she needs to send her 16 year old to time out. Oh, you think you're 16, you're eight again, go to the corner. Like that's what I'm thinking, but. Okay, now back to the globe. I want you to compare that to the satire moe coming of age tradition called the uh, bullet ant initiation. Okay, in the Brazilian Amazon, 13 year old boys mark their coming of age by searching the jungle for bullet ants, then sedating them, weaving them into gloves with their stingers pointed inwards. You can see where this is going. And about an hour or so later, when the ants wake up angrier than ever, the initiation begins. Each boy has to wear the gloves for about 10 minutes. Enduring the pain demonstrates the boy's readiness for manhood. Each boy wears the gloves about 20 times over the span of the next several months before the initiation's over. Now, can we just state the obvious here? These are two very different worldviews from sweet 16 to bullet ants. And that sounds, it's, it does sound very intense. I am not advocating bullet ants here at the Love the Ville Church. <laughs> to be very clear with you all. Um, some of the initiation rites of other cultures can be quite violent. Sometimes young people die in these traditions. So, you know, not good, right? But we look at these traditions and we kind of stick our nose up and we think to ourselves, well, how barbaric? How could they ever do such a thing to their kids? But Catholic theologian Ron Rollheiser makes an important point here. Pushes back on all of us. He says, do you know what's really killing our kids though? 
You know what's killing our kids? Self-initiation. When the elder generation abdicates its responsibilities to initiate their kids into life, kids got to figure it out on their own. And that's fear-inducing, that's anxiety-triggering, that's an equation for confusion, chaos, and immature adults. Basically, when the elder generation doesn't initiate the younger, the younger's left to initiate themselves, to self-initiate. And what happens is people just end up carrying adolescence into adulthood. They just don't ever grow up. Now, in my observation, we live in a culture right now that's not initiating kids. The alarm bells are going off, aren't they? Statistically, young people are more mentally unhealthy, anxious, and depressed than ever. Uh, They are lonelier, more antisocial, and despairing than previous generations. They are extending adolescence further, sometimes all the way into their 30s. Um, They are more untrusting than previous generations, more confused about purpose and identity, uh, more fragile, and they have this low boil seething rage against all the institutions that have failed them. Rightfully so. Now hear me, young people, like for, for what it's worth, I'm not hating. This is just the statistics. Every generation has its issues. My generation had incredible issues. My parents, my grandparents' generation, they had big issues. Your generation has amazing strengths. Uh, But the statistics here are compelling and they're concerning. And I believe the keystone solution is rediscovering the importance of initiating our kids into reality and faith. Specifically, and this is where the rest of the sermon is going, y'all, initiating our kids, one, into the undeniable truths of life and two, the inevitable firsts of life on God's terms. Now, first, let's start with the undeniable truths of life. Richard Rohr has done a lot of formation um, or done a lot of research on the formation of youth. Um, He's basically studied how communities across the globe, across religion, initiate kids. And he says that most societies, until ours, um, focus on these five major truths of life. First, uh, they teach their kids, one, that life is hard. Life is hard. Not only will you face bad things like pain and betrayal and sickness and disappointment and failure and the likes, but also the good things of life, they're hard too. Like it's hard to build wealth. It's hard to, to acquire expertise and mastery in a craft or in a field of study. It's hard to build a career. It's hard to raise kids and a family. It's hard to get to your 50th wedding anniversary, right? These are the good things of life, right? But they're hard. They're hard. Second, you are not that important. You're not that important. There are 8 billion people on this planet. Within 15 years of your death, you will be forgotten by most of them. So how do we get our kids to live as if the world doesn't revolve around them? How do we coach them to be content with changing the world by loving their neighbor? How do we convince them in a social media age that the size of their platform and the opinions of others isn't the sum of who they are? Third, uh, your life is not about you. Your life is not about you. Now, most societies before ours uh, raise young people to serve some bigger purpose than individual fulfillment. Like we're raising you to serve the community in this way, right? 
In some societies, you don't pick your job, you don't pick your spouse, you don't pick your religion. Like we're this tribe, these are our values, this is your identity and community and your purpose is to serve our God and our community in this way. Fascinating. Fourth, you're not in control. Not in control. Now, for what it's worth, this one we can forget really, really easy in the developed world. Because all of our wealth and all of our affluence can buffer the suffering that the rest of the world experiences day to day and the undeveloped world, it can buffer it out of our lives. So we can start to believe that we actually are in control of things. But if there was one blessing of the last three years in this global pandemic and all the, the tragedy that came with it, it was that it shattered our, any illusion that anybody has in this room of our sense of, self uh, our sense of control over this world. We do not have control. It upended our routines. It upended what was normal for us. It upended our relationships. It upended our major institutions. It turned it all upside down. And in my observation, the kids who handled it the best were the kids who were being made to reckon with this major truth of life. They're not in control. God is. Kids who place their trust in that, they've done pretty well. Kids who don't, not as much. Uh, fifth major truth, fifth major truth, you are going to die. And I wouldn't suggest you just come out and like say it that way to your kid. All right. But statistics are on our side with this one. So it's just one of those realities that we need to be reckoning with. Are you initiating your kids? Are you initiating your kids into these realities in healthy ways or are you shielding them from them? I know these can sound pretty negative. I get that. Um, but the point is, is that they're true. Life is hard. You're not that important. Your life's not about you. You're not in control. You're gonna die someday. It's true. And one of the greatest gifts that a parent can give to their kids is to just help them reckon with this in a healthy way, prepare them for this in a healthy way. Like too many parents have abdicated the role of socializing and initiating kids into reality. Big point here. Socialization, initiation, and service have been replaced as core parental values with things like self-discovery, self-expression, and self-actualization. Basically, instead of helping our kids contact reality for the first time, we allow them to create their own. Instead of equipping them to serve society, we allow them to believe that society should bend for them. Uh, Philip Reif is an uh, American uh, sociologist. He's at the University of Pennsylvania from 1961-1992. And uh, many today are calling him a prophet though, for how he evaluated and diagnosed our cultural moment. He called our culture today the uh, triumph of the modern self, or excuse me, the triumph of the therapeutic self, sorry, the triumph of the therapeutic self. And his basic argument is that we have seen over the course of human history, people go through four major shifts in the way they understand their identity, four major shifts. Now, I think his history is a bit shoddy, but the point he, he makes here is really, really good. So bear with me. First, he says, going all the way back to the time of Aristotle and Plato, um, there's what we see uh, called the, the political man, political man. 
in ancient Greece and ancient Rome, basically people found their identity through civic and through communal engagement. Like how are you engaging the community? How are you engaging politically? That's where you find your worth. That's what you're made for. Now, eventually the political man gave way to the second major type in the middle ages. Um, he calls the religious man, the religious man. Here people found their identity through religious participation. And if you think about it, like think Canterbury Tales here, so much of the way medieval society was structured was structured around church buildings and religious holidays and liturgical calendars. Now next, the religious man was eventually displaced by the economic man. Think 1800s into the early 1900s. Uh, basically what happens is as the world industrializes and as capitalism explodes, people begin to find their identity through work and through the making of money. But then finally, the economic man gives way to Reef's latest player on the historical stage, that which he dubs the psychological man, psychological man. And that's us, that's us. See, what makes our generation so different than everyone before us is that identity is no longer found through outward activities like civic service, religious participation, or economic success. Neither is it found through external institutions like government, like faith, like church, like school, like family. Instead, today, people find their identity through the inward quest for psychological happiness. That's the psychological man. Meaning is found through expressing your inner feelings and desires. You must be authentic, authentic, authentic. Like that's the buzzword today. You'd think authentic was a fruit of the spirit or something, right? Each person must realize their authentic humanity in their own authentic way and find their authentic path. Don't conform to any model imposed upon you by any authority or any institution outside of your authentic self. You must be authentic. Now, for what it's worth, I think that there are some positive things that our society has learned from the triumph of the, the therapeutic self. But one of the big negatives is that all the institutions that we have traditionally depended on to initiate our kids, to raise and form them, like schools, like the family, like church, they've all been weakened drastically by this mindset. For example, uh, one of the traditional roles of institutions of higher education is to expose students to ideas that challenge their deepest beliefs. Why? so they can think critically, learn critical thinking skills, and also come into a strengthened relationship with the truth. That's what school does. Today, though, if a professor introduces controversial material that doesn't affirm their students, they'll be canceled. They will be fired. They will be castigated for not creating a safe space or cast out for violating orthodoxy. Now, my question is this, if institutions of higher education can't challenge what a teenager believes, like who can't, what's the point? Same thing with religion, by the way. Most church leaders I know right now are, are running scared. They are. They are scared to preach the whole counsel of God to their church. They're scared to speak into pressing matters that are affecting everyone's life and our culture. They're scared to offer appropriate accountability or church discipline when necessary because come on, like people just leave. You don't like what I'm saying? You just go to the church. Church discipline, could you imagine? Has anybody ever heard of church discipline? Raise your hand if you've ever heard of this concept of church discipline. Okay, so you know it's biblical. 
Now I say church discipline today in our cultural context, people are like, what is that? How dare the church, right? But 1 Corinthians 5 gives us a classic example of this. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. Uh, They have a a sexual center in their church. This guy is apparently sleeping with his mother-in-law. Okay. Um, And uh, (laughs) let's, let's get back to the New Testament church, Tyler. Which one, right? Like not Corinth. So he's sleeping with his mother-in-law. And so you know what Paul says? He says, it's time for a little church discipline. This is what I want you to do. Um, After you go to the Mexican restaurant after church and seal the service, I want you to come back at 2 p.m., have a public service, a public service, and I want you to excommunicate that sinful man. Hand him over to the devil. (laughs) Now, could you imagine doing that in a church today? Hey, at 2 p.m. today, we're gonna come back, all right? And somebody's sleeping with their mother-in-law and so they're out. And we're gonna make them stand on stage and hand them over to the devil. I mean, that would be on the front page of the news for not good reasons, by the way. Actually, I had somebody uh, in, our, in our church uh, recently meet with me and they're like, you need to do this. They, they, they point to a specific example of something that was happening in our church. They quoted verses um, about, you know, speaking the truth and church discipline. And, uh, you know, while I empathize with their desire to be biblical, come on, this, just, this might have worked in the first century, restoring people back to the faith. This may have worked on the American frontier when there was one church in town and nobody had cars to drive to the next one. But in the 21st century, man, okay, if you discipline someone, they're gonna blast you on social media, call you judgmental or a Pharisee or a bigot or whatever and move on to the church down the street. You see how this is weakened? Schools, weakened weakened churches? Same thing for parenting. Okay, so what about parenting? I think parents have bought into this mindset hook, line, and sinker. Instead of initiating our kids into life and faith, we're insulating them from reality. Back to our our five major truths, okay? Instead of helping kids realize that life is hard in healthy ways, we have the phenomena called helicopter moms who like hover over their kids to make sure that they never bump or bruise their bodies or their egos. And we have lawnmower dads who mow all adversity out from in front of, of their children. Your teacher gave you a B? I'll let me email her. Your coach sat you on the bench? I'll talk to him. You made a mistake? I must have been the other kid's fault. They're asking you to do something hard there? We'll just go to another school. You're not that important. Your life's not about you. Instead of helping them reckon with this, find a purpose bigger than themselves, we're all like, hey, follow your heart. Find your truth. Unleash your inner greatness. Instead of teaching them, you're not in control. I think we give them way too much control, more control than they are capable of handling at this age. Like there's a reason why you don't get your driver's license until you're 16, you know? I don't wanna impose upon you, honey. So, you know, look, I'm gonna let you work out your identity and your purpose and your moral compass and your meaning and your future on your own. And you don't have your driver's license yet, much less a fully formed cerebral cortex, but go for it. 
Good luck. Can you even imagine, can you even imagine Jesus saying any of this, by the way, to his disciples? Peter, Peter, follow your heart. No, he's like, follow me. Follow me, purify your heart. John, John, do what makes you happy. No, he's like, John, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. It's a narrow road. Philip, find your truth, make your own way. No, it's Jesus like, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, the only one. The only one at that. If you study Jesus's life, by the way, what you see is that his model of leadership is incredibly informative for parents. Look at, look at how he mentors his disciples. Profound. Um, well, first, his, his, he, he, models, he models the model for him, right? His main and primary invitation to the disciples was what? Follow me, follow me. And for three and a half years, that's what they do. They just kind of follow him around. They watch, they observe, they do things alongside of him and they pick up how to contact the realities of life by doing it alongside of Jesus. He models it, follow me. Then he has long sessions with him where, where he's hanging out, where he's teaching them. One of my favorite uh, you know, instances in scripture is when Jesus will teach the crowds. Then later that night, the disciples will be like, yeah, can you explain that to us? And I'll have another teaching session with them to help them just reckon with what they're going through. He has incredible patience with them. Very direct communicator though. Get behind me, Satan, he says once to Peter. But has incredible patience with them totally forgiving, lets them fail. Like, I don't know that one time where James and John uh, wanna incinerate an entire town of people and he turns it into one of the great life lessons that you find in scripture. Oh, and then eventually he, he says, you're ready and he sends them out. And they do quite well. So look, parents, put the five up one more time. Put the five up one more time. Um, this is, this is real, this is real, this is reality. And uh, we're, we're not doing our children any favors by letting them create their own reality. <laughs> when the fabricated realities of childhood collide with the actual reality of life, and they will, actual reality always wins. Now, in his book, Intentional Father, which has been one of my recommended readings this series, especially for all the men in the room who have sons, uh, John Tyson reframes uh, Roar's five truths into five uh, shifts that I think are a bit more palatable, okay? Uh, this, is, this is the kind of language you might want to use with your kids. Uh, Tyson says, instead of saying life is hard, it's a shift from ease to difficulty. I'm gonna teach you how to do some difficult things because, I don't know, life can be difficult. Instead of saying, you're not important, don't say that, okay? Instead, uh, it's a shift. Helping kids see, look, kids care about themselves, but adults care about others. Instead of saying, your life is not about you, it's a shift from, you're a part of a larger story. You're not the whole story, but you're part of an important story. Instead of saying, you're not in control, it's helping them shift from control to surrender. One of the great values, virtues, follower of Jesus. And instead of saying, you're gonna die, again, do not say that. It's, it's a shift from helping them see the temporary to seeing the eternal. 
looking at life from the eternal perspective. So this is your homework, by the way. Homework, part one. I've got a little bit more homework in just a second. This is your homework, part one for this week. I would ask you to consider how are you helping your kids shift from ease to difficulty because life is hard, from selfishness to selflessness because adults care about others, from self-importance to worship because yes, your story is important, but it is but a chapter in the grandiose story of God, from control to surrender. In fact, I have found that for like the first 10 years of life, you're teaching your kids self-control and the next 10 years, you're teaching them how to give it up to God. And then last, from the temporary to the eternal. How do we teach them to fix their eyes on the things of heaven, not the things of earth? To store up in heaven their treasure and to see themselves as ambassadors for Jesus and his kingdom because this is not their home. All right, now let's make this even more practical here. We talked about the undeniable truths of life for most of our time here. Um, What about the inevitable firsts of life, the inevitable firsts of life. I'm gonna make pretty short work of this, but one of the best ways I think we can initiate our kids into the undeniable truths of life and into adulthood is to actually be prepared to walk with them through some of the big formative firsts that they go through when they're in your home. There's lots of them and they're critical. A lot of times you never know when it's coming. So how are you gonna handle their firsts? This is homework part two. I've compiled a list of just some firsts. These are mostly firsts that I've either dealt with in my own parental you know, prayers and thinking or have dealt with pastoring people through our church. There are more firsts in this, but maybe this, this will help get you started. Uh, you can throw that slide up there. How are you gonna help them uh, when they start school? And by, by first to school, I mean, this could be kindergarten. This could also be like starting middle school, starting high school, starting college. How are you going to walk them through their first exposure to a bully, their first exposure to a non-Christian? Which, by the way, can be disorienting for a young kid. Like when like they grow up in your house, they think everybody loves Jesus. And you find out everybody doesn't actually love Jesus. It's, it's an important first. First crush, first exposure to LGBTQ community, first exposure to death, first exposure to racism and white supremacy, first major failure, first major sin. I remember my first major sin in for, first, it was first grade. We got time? Okay, so I got caught. I don't even know why this just popped in my head. This is 11 a.m. exclusive material here. I remember in first grade, I got caught um, lying. In a big way. We had a reading competition in our room to see who could read the most books. There was this evil kid named David White who always read more than me. And so I was just like, I'm gonna beat David. So I went home, wrote down all the books on my bookshelf, turned in my teacher. I, I was up like 50 books on him, right? And my mom and my teacher busted me. They're like, first grader can't read 300 books in like a three days, kid. What's going on here? So they, this is what they made me do. They made me stand up in front of the entire class, apologize to David and move my fish all the way. They had, the scoreboard was a bunch of fish on the wall. <laughs> to move my fish back to the back. Anyways, I'll never forget that. I don't know if it scarred me or if it helped me, but formative firsts. Back to the list, please. Uh, first major adversity, first date, uh, first breakup, first fight. Uh, their baptism, first mission trip. Talk about a formative moment when you expose young people to a different culture or to the poverty that you can find in some places in this world. 
uh, first doubts about faith, first cell phone, driver's license, first job, gender specific transitions. You know, I'm thinking like the first shave for guys or the first cycle for girls, uh, first exposure to drugs and alcohol, first vote. And these are just a few, you can add more to this, but here's the catch, here's the catch. These are actually the moments when they can catch the major truths of life. You can help introduce them to these major core truths on Jesus' terms. Like these are some of the things that make life hard. These are some of the things that put their importance and their purpose into perspective. These are some of the big moments when they realize they're not in control or they have to reckon with their own mortality, right? These are some of the moments that you can be there to shepherd your kid through. What a, what a great honor that is. And again, a lot of these firsts can't be scheduled, but they can be prepared for. So homework part two, just like find that list of firsts, create your own list of firsts and uh, take a few mornings this week and just think about it. Pray about it with your spouse, with your friends. How are you gonna guide your kids through it? You know, both Paul and the author of Hebrews use this one specific word to describe healthy parenting. It's the Greek word paideia. And uh, it's translated usually in English with the English word discipline, discipline. Ephesians chapter six, verse four is the classic example of it. Paul writes, uh, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Uh, Which by the way is a sermon in and of itself. (laughs) Underline that in your husband's Bible, wives, go ahead. Then Paul writes this, he says, rather bring them up with the discipline, there's the word paideia, the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. Now, I believe the English translation uh, here, discipline is an unfortunate one because when we think of the word discipline, we think of punishment. Like a kid did something wrong and we gotta punish him, make him face the consequences for it. It's punitive, if you will. But to be clear, paideia means that. It means discipline in a punitive sense, but it means so much more than that. Like the full semantic range of the word is actually quite beautiful. It can also mean instruction or encouragement or direction or guidance or help. It's used for the developmental energy that a parent brings to the table, but can also be applied to a teacher or to a coach or to a pastor or to a counselor or to a mentor, which by the way, are all hats that a parent has to wear along the road. It covers the full gamut of parental responsibility. So here would be my my summary for you, my summary. I think parental padilla is this. It's the daily task of the physical, intellectual, relational, and spiritual formation of a child. And again, what an honor it is that we get to participate in that. And let us not forget, Ephesians chapter six, verse four. Let us not forget how Paul ends this verse. He says, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. Jesus is why. He must remain central. I'll close with that today. This has to stay the main thing. When we think about initiating our kids into life, when we think about forming them through their first, when we think about coaching them through some of life's major truths, launching them into adulthood, the key is to keep Jesus central in all of this. I found it so comforting after laying out his five major truths in in his book, Adam's return, um, Richard Rohr comes, uh, comes and he reminds us what Jesus actually says about all these five truths. 
uh, Roar says, it is true that life is hard, but Jesus says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. It is true that you are not that important, but Jesus says, don't you know that your name is written in heaven? It is true your life is not about you, but Paul says, I live now not my own life, but the life of Christ who lives in me. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. He's your life. And when he's revealed, you will be revealed in all your glory with him. It is true that you're not in control, but can any of you, Jesus says, for all your worrying at a single moment to your span of life? And it is true that you are going to die, but Paul says, I am certain of this, neither death nor life, nothing that exists, nothing still to come, not any power, not any height, not any depth, nor any created thing can ever come between us and the love of God. You see, what we find is that while Jesus' way is the cross, and that way is so far away from the radical individualism of our cultural moment, it's actually where our soul finds rest in this crazy world. Now, I don't know why I started doing it, but um, when, when Palmer was young many years ago, uh, I would sing to him before he went to bed. Um, and uh, the song that I chose to, to sing to him was a song we sang earlier, What a Beautiful Name. And I sing it to, to Larkin, I sing it to Olsen. Some people sing, you sing whatever you want. You know, there's no trick to this. Some people sing lullabies. My wife writes her own lullabies. It's just <laughs> classic. They're good too. Like they really are. Um, but um, I just got to settle for the church songs. So um, I, I sing it, I've been singing it over my kids for years. Um, and the reason why is I just wanna press into their hearts the victory and the power of Jesus because that will always be their guiding light. At least I hope. Oh man, I want central in their mind that death could not hold him. The veil tore before him. He silences the boast of sin and grave. The heavens are roaring for him. The praise of his glory for he's raised to life again. He has no rival. He has no equal. Now, forever, God, Jesus, he will reign. His is the kingdom. His is the glory. His is the name above all name. What a powerful name it is, Jesus. Jesus. And that's because I truly believe that's where the peace that passes understanding is found in the power of Jesus. That's where that joy that transcends circumstances is found in the victory of Jesus. That's where that, that hope that can melt grief is found in the glory of Jesus. And I want this seared into their consciousness. All about Jesus. It's all Jesus. In fact, I only have so much wisdom to offer my kids. <laughs> it's not a lot as they're finding out. And... Uh, and I can't prepare them for everything. And one day they're gonna fly the nest and I won't be there beside them anymore as they make their way into adulthood. And then not longer after, after that, they will put me in the ground and they will be left to do this on their own without me. But in those moments when I'm gone, I know they won't be alone. They will have one person with them still and that's Jesus He's the only one who's there with them from birth until death, right? Not me. Not even I, their father, get that honor. So if their heart song is the powerful name of Jesus, I believe they can't go wrong.
So point them to Jesus. And how about this for a closing invitation today? Uh, you can't do that if you haven't surrendered to Jesus yourself. Can you? So if you've never made that decision on your own, for the sake of your future and for the sake of your kids, I would invite you to do that today. Heavenly Father, this room is full of people who desire to bring the love of Jesus into their homes. Give us the wisdom today. Give us the passion to make this a first priority and a first love. Give us the time and energy to devote to it. And give us the overwhelming joy that comes from being able to participate in such a beautiful thing, the formation of one of your children, one of your image bearers. We love you, God. We accept this, this invitation, fear and trembling, but also with excitement and expectation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.